Welcome to Living in the Light with Bible teacher Anne Graham Lotz. God's name is a sacred vessel, a name by which he reveals himself. And we toast the gods of hypocrisy and pride and when we take God's name in vain through profanity or just calling ourselves a Christian and not acting like it. Anne's message title for today's edition of Living in the Light is in the form of a question. Children of the light? Really? Are we children of the light? Or does our behavior betray us? Join Anne as she begins today's message with a charming story, but underscoring the seriousness of her message from Daniel chapter 5. The story is told of the Duke of Kent and the Prince of Wales when they were little children, where the Prince of Wales and the Duke of Kent were living in Buckingham Palace, and they were very tired of just being confined to the palace, and they wanted to get outside and have some fun. So they decided to dress in old clothes, and when their mother wasn't looking, they slipped out the door, and they went through the gate, and they found themselves in Hyde Park. And they were about eight and ten years of age, and they were just running through the park, just having so much fun cutting up and just acting like every other little boy, and they looked like little street urchins. And they rounded the corner in the park, and there was a big, fat policeman standing there. And the Duke of Kent said to the Prince of Wales, You know, I've heard that all big, fat policemen are bald. And the Prince of Wales said, Well, how would you know? Because he's wearing a hat. And they both look at each other, and then they look over, and there's a little pond there, and there's another little boy who was skipping rocks across the pond. And so they went down to this third little boy, and they pulled out of their pockets a sterling silver crown, just a, a piece of money, a coin, And they showed it to the little boy beside the pond, and they said, we'll give you this if you'll knock the hat off that big fat policeman. And so the little boy looked at the silver coin, and then he looked at the fat policeman, and in one motion he took the coin, and he reached out, and he picked up a rock, and he threw it with just expert swiftness, and off flew the policeman's hat, and sure enough, he was bald. He was also very angry, and he came running after those three little boys, and he grabbed them by the scruff of the neck, and... He said, listen, what do you think you're doing? I'm an officer of the law, and you have treated me with such disrespect. And he turned to the first one, and he said, now tell me what your name is. And the first one said, officer, you won't believe this, but my name is the Duke of Kent. And the officer began to get red in the face, and he said, listen, he said, don't play games with me. He said, I want to know what your real name is. And he turned to the second one, and he said, what is your name? And the little boy said, you are really not going to believe this, but I'm the Prince of Wales. And now the officer is getting angrier and angrier and he says listen you're just going to make it harder on yourselves and you're just going to get into more trouble you've got to tell me the truth and so he turns to the third little boy and he says what is your name and the third little boy looks at the other two and he winks and he nudges him with his elbow and he says i've got it and he looked up at the officer so sweetly and he said i'm the archbishop of canterbury They were children of the king, but because they weren't acting like it, no one believed it when they said they were. I wonder when you say that you're a Christian, do people look at you and wink and say, yeah, and I'm the Archbishop of Canterbury? (laughs) Does your behavior betray you? Or through your behavior can other people see Christ? Character counts. Because through our character, we glorify God. We reveal Jesus to the world around us. If you'd open to Daniel chapter 5, we're going to look at Daniel glorifying God as he witnesses by what he says. And he gives out a verbal witness in a world that's on the verge of collapse. In Daniel chapter 5, Nebuchadnezzar has died, and he's left the kingdom of Babylon to his grandson, Belshazzar. And Daniel, in 
chapter 5, is about 80 years of age or maybe a little bit older. And Belshazzar is ruling Babylon. And I want to describe the city of Babylon for a moment. Babylon was an empire that covered the world. But the city of Babylon has been excavated. It was 20 square miles in size. It had two huge walls that circled around it. The outer wall was 350 feet high. Now, that's 50 feet higher than a football field is long. It had over 100 bronze gates, and each one of the the gates in the guard towers was 450 feet high, meaning 100 feet higher than a football field is long. It was so wide that three chariots could run abreast on top of this wall. It was like a fortress. And the Euphrates River ran from one side of the city, underneath the wall, through the city, out the other side, so that the city had a continual supply of fresh water. They had fields where they could grow their crops, they had fields where they had livestock, and plus they had beautiful boulevards and homes and palaces and the the hanging gardens that Nebuchadnezzar had built for his queen. It was a magnificent city, and it was absolutely secure. It was It was impregnable. It was just like a large fortress. And Nebuchadnezzar had ruled the world from the city of Babylon, and he had been a very able administrator. And under his rule, he had conquered the world. But when he died and his kingdom went to his grandson, his grandson was a spoiled brat. And Belshazzar just lived for himself. He didn't care about anybody else. And so he has lost the whole kingdom except for the city of Babylon. And Belshazzar lives in the city of Babylon with his nobles and his officials and the people that lived in the city. And he didn't care about anything or anyone else. And so the Persians, the Medes and the Persians, had come and they'd laid siege to the city of Babylon. And they had been there for months, possibly even years. And they were trying to take the city of Babylon. Belshazzar wasn't at all concerned because he knew no one could get into that fortress. They had their fresh water, they had their livestock, their crops, they could live completely independent of anything outside the walls, and so he was just having a good old time. In the meantime, the Medes and Persians were camped outside those walls trying to take the city. But we see the world that Belshazzar was ruling in was a world that was on the verge of collapse. It was a world that was in decline. And Daniel, as he has a witness, a verbal witness, he has this witness in a world that is on the verge of collapse, a nation that's in decline. And you and I are living in a nation that is in decline, morally and spiritually. In fact, I almost don't feel we're any more in decline. We're almost bankrupt. We live in a nation that's on the verge of collapse because you cannot destroy the morals and the spiritual values of our nation and exist any longer or have any kind of future. And so we're living also in a world that is collapsing in a nation that's in decline. But Belshazzar's world was wicked. And the wickedness climaxed at a banquet that he threw for his officials. And it's in chapter 5, and I'm not going to read it verse by verse, but he threw a, a banquet for all of his officials, for their wives, for their mistresses. There were thousands of people that came to this banquet. And so while the Medes and Persians are camped outside the city walls, Belshazzar has anybody who is anybody into his hall for uh, day after day after day of feasting and banqueting. And so on this particular evening, we can imagine going in with all the women dressed in their finest silk dresses, and you can hear the rustle of silk, and you see the men all in their uniforms with their medals displayed down their chest, and you can hear the, the tinkle of the silver and the china as it... As the people are eating in the background, there would be soft music. You can hear laughter and conversation and just a beautiful, elegant, lovely evening. And the wine was flowing, and the wine was flowing, and the wine was flowing, and everybody was getting drunker and drunker until finally Belshazzar is very drunk, 
And he calls for his servants and he says, listen, I want you to go to the temple and get the articles that my grandfather brought from the temple in Jerusalem, the vessels that have been dedicated to the living God of the Jews. I want you to bring them in here to the banquet hall. And the servants did as they were commanded. And so Belshazzar takes the sacred vessels that had been dedicated to service of the living God in the temple in Jerusalem. He took them and he filled them with wine. He passed them out to his nobles and his friends and they toasted their pagan gods using these sacred vessels of God. They were taking the sacred things of God and just trashing them. It was Belshazzar just thumbing his nose at God, just saying, spitting in God's face, God, these are sacred to you. They mean nothing to me. I'll toast my own gods of silver and gold. And he says in verse 3, they brought in the gold goblets and he gave them to his wives, his nobles, his concubines. They drank from them, and as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And I thought today, you know, we point our finger at Belshazzar, and we think how awful, how blasphemous, and that's exactly what this was. It was blasphemy. And yet we do the same thing today. And I was asking myself, what are the sacred vessels of God today? And I thought of several, I think... One sacred vessel of God is, is life itself, life created in his image, life that is meant to glorify him. And we toast our gods of comfort and convenience and trash life through abortion or through euthanasia, doctor death. We can even trash our life as we live for ourselves instead of living to glorify God, just taking the sacred vessel of God and saying, this may be sacred to you, but we're going to use it the way we want, and we'll toast our own gods, God of pride and selfishness. And I thought another sacred vessel was our own bodies, our bodies that are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and we're to live our lives in our bodies to glorify God, and we toast the gods of lust and pleasure and abuse our bodies through immorality and through drugs, through alcohol. And I thought, you know, even God's name is a sacred vessel, a name by which he reveals himself. And we toast the gods of hypocrisy and pride and when we take God's name in vain through profanity or just calling ourselves a Christian and not acting like it. There are many sacred vessels today. You, you might think about it yourself. What are the sacred vessels and all around us in our society, in our world today, we see society taking the sacred vessels of God and just trashing them, toasting their own gods with a sacred vessel. Our world is just as wicked today as Belshazzar's day was. And not only was his world wicked, but the world was warned in verse 5. Suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace, and the king watched it. So we have this dimly lit banquet hall, but there's a lampstand in front of a plastered wall, and on the plastered wall, just a hand, no arm, no shoulder, just a hand, and from the light of the lamp, it would make the shadows of the hand, make the hand look larger than it was, and there was just a hand writing on the wall. And it was God warning the wicked world of Daniel's day, judgment is coming. God was warning Belshazzar, judgment is coming. You know, in the Bible, God never sneaks up and judges somebody by surprise. 
He always warns them, judgment is coming. What's the handwriting on the wall today? If our world is as wicked as Belshazzar's world was, and God warned Belshazzar's world, how is he warning our world today? I believe God is warning our world today through earthquakes and through hurricanes and through tornadoes and through crime on the streets, through an epidemic of AIDS, through problems that have no human solution. And you say, and there have always been things like this taking place. Always been earthquakes, always been tornadoes, always been floods, always been fires. But you know, it's interesting when you read the paper, you'll read it's the worst flood in human history. It's the worst hurricane that's ever hit that area of the world. It's, it's getting worse and worse until it's the worst. And Jesus said, they're birth pains. And you remember when you gave birth? I'll never forget. <laughs> I couldn't take any medication. And I went through my first one, 36 hours. My second one was 28. My third one was 24 hours of hard labor. And I remember the birth pains. They came, they started like five minutes apart, and then four minutes, and then three minutes. And, and when they increased in frequency... And then they increased in intensity until finally those last few pains, I just hollered. I couldn't stand it. It was so painful. But then the baby was born. And Jesus said, you'll see birth pains in our world. And he gives the birth pains that will, that will come to pass. And he gives a list of them in Matthew 24. And there are other passages in Scripture that tell you what the birth pains are. And he says, when you see them increase in frequency and intensity, you know, not that the baby is going to be born, but judgment is coming. The end of the world is near. The return of Christ is imminent. And the return of Christ for you and me as believers is salvation for the world. It's judgment. Judgment is coming. And those birth pains that Jesus lists, many of them are what I've just said. National problems that have no human solution and, and just the perplexity of nations, Luke says. Selfishness amongst believers who hoard their money when there's so much need in society earthquakes and famines and pestilence and just getting worse and worse and worse and warning a wicked world judgment is coming the handwriting is on the wall and i believe god warns also through godly men and women who stand in the pulpits and the lecterns and share the bible with their friends to just let them know the end of the world is at hand Judgment is coming. And you know, I could be wrong. Maybe these aren't birth pains. Maybe we're not living at the end of the world. And, and by the way, I am absolutely convinced that we are, but maybe I'm wrong. You could be living at the end of your world when you go out of here and are in a car accident and suddenly your life is taken. Or you could be diagnosed with a fatal disease and suddenly the end of the world has come for you. The end of the world was coming for Belshazzar. And God was warning him, judgment is coming. Now, I don't know if God has any handwriting on the wall in your life. Could it be there's someone here who's been raised in the church? You're a member of a church, you've been baptized, you take communion, you consider yourself a Christian. But has God put some sort of handwriting on the wall in your life through a family problem, through a health difficulty? through something taking place in your business, some, and it somehow it's gotten your attention. And God used this handwriting on the wall to get Belshazzar's attention. What is God using to get your attention? Maybe you are indeed saved, you're a believer, you're a Christian, but you're not living like it and you're not acting like it and God's not pleased. And is he using something to get your attention? That's the handwriting on the wall. And so God was warning Belshazzar 
And not only was the world wicked and warned, it became very worried. And we see in verse 6, the king's face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. He was terrified. And our world that is worried and warned increasingly is worried. And you see that when it comes to the crime and they're trying to do away with the guns. You see that in the health care. You see that in our economy. You see that in the employment. You see that all across the board, our world that is wicked and, worry and warned is now worried. Belshazzar became very worried. And so he did what people in his day did. He called together all the wise men, all the counselors, all the professionals, the psychologists and the psychiatrists and the representatives and the cabinet officials and all the king's men. And they come in and he asked them to interpret the handwriting on the wall and not one of them could interpret it. So King Belshazzar in verse 9 became even more terrified and his face grew more pale and his nobles were baffled. They could not interpret the handwriting on the wall because when God is warning the world, there is no solution for that except repentance. And it requires a man of God to interpret the judgment of God and let the world know what the warning is. The only solution is to repent of your sin. The only solution is to turn to God. But this wicked world that was warned and worried has no interpretation for the warning. And so they're just getting more and more worried. And finally, in verse 10, the queen mother comes in and she hears the voices of the nobles and she says, O king, live forever. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. Belshazzar, get your act together. You're just falling apart. And then she says, There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. Belshazzar, there is a spirit-filled man. That's what she's saying. I know of one spirit-filled man in the whole province of Babylon. He was someone that knew your grandfather. Belshazzar, call Daniel. Daniel, in his 80s, old man is sent for. An old man who put God first in his life and lived his life to glorify God walks into this banquet hall. Wouldn't you love to have seen it? You know, when we get to heaven, I hope we get to see videos of certain things. And I want to see a video of Genesis 1, and I want to see a video of the flood, and I want to see a video of Daniel walking into this banquet hall. And all these officials, who anybody who was anybody was there, and they've had this gorgeous feast, and I'm sure the glasses are now toppled on the table because everybody's gotten drunk, but they're now very sober. And they're sitting there, absolutely quiet, staring at this old man as he walks into the banquet hall. I expect he has a long beard, and I expect, although he may be stooped from age, that there would be a nobility about his countenance and a dignity and integrity. You can see the character etched into the lines of his face. And in contrast to all these drunken, decadent, blasphemous officials, this man of God comes into the hall. And we see in a world that was collapsing, Daniel gives a witness by what he says, and what he says took such courage. And in a collapsing world, you and I are to be courageous in what we say. And look at Daniel's courage. The king 
tells Daniel in verse 16, Daniel, if you'll interpret this writing on the wall, I'll give you a purple robe and I'll give you a new necklace and I'll give you a ring to wear. And then he says, I'll make you the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That was interesting to me because under Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel had been the highest ruler in the kingdom, meaning Belshazzar probably had demoted Daniel. So he's saying, Daniel, you interpret this. I'll give you your old job back. And look at Daniel's answer in verse 17. Look at his integrity. You can keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to somebody else. Belshazzar, I am not in the ministry for money. God has given me a gift to interpret dreams, and I'm not cashing in on my gift. Wouldn't you love for Daniel to hold a pastor's conference or to teach the evangelists and the Bible teachers of our day? When he gave out God's word, it was with integrity. He couldn't be bought. And I'm involved in a ministry, and I'm appalled at the abuse of the ministry just at the level I'm on, and I'm not even a pastor of a church or involved in, in a larger way. And one of the joys of my life, when I'm invited to speak and I accept, and they say, Ann, what is your fee? And I say, there's no charge. It's my joy to offer the gospel at no charge. And that doesn't mean the pastor of a church doesn't have the right to be supported by the church. The Apostle Paul said he certainly does. But there's a difference between being supported in an honorable way and just cashing in on your ministry. And Daniel spoke with integrity. He wasn't selling himself or the gift that God had given him. And then we see him speaking with authority, and I won't go over it in verses 18 to 24, but basically he relates to Belshazzar the testimony of his grandfather. And I wish we'd had more time because I would have shared with you Daniel chapter 4, which is Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest king of the greatest empire in the whole world, the man that Saddam Hussein said he wants to be like, Nebuchadnezzar was converted at the end of his life. And the way it took place, he was living in pride and rebellion against God. Daniel had witnessed to him all of his life and he had rejected the witness until finally God came to Nebuchadnezzar and said, if you don't repent and turn to me, I'm going to take away your sanity until you do turn to me. And Nebuchadnezzar thought it was just a, he was moved by the, the dream and moved by Daniel's explanation, but he didn't repent. He didn't turn to God. He lived in pride for a whole year. God was patient, waiting for Nebuchadnezzar to repent. For one whole year, Nebuchadnezzar lived for himself, refusing to repent. And one day he was just boasting about how great he was. And just like that, God reached down and touched a little brain cell in Nebuchadnezzar's head, and he went stark raving mad. And he became like an animal. He lived outside. He ate the grass of the field. His hair grew like feathers. His nails grew like claws. And he became a madman for seven years. And at the end of that time, he repented of his sin. And he turned to God. He was sick of the way he was living, sick of what had happened in his life. And he turned to God, and God saved Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar then testified he lived the rest of his life to glorify the God of heaven. And Belshazzar knew his grandfather's testimony. He not only knew it himself, but now Daniel relates it to him once again and says, Belshazzar, you remember what happened to your grandfather, the greatest king in the world. And God held him accountable for his sin. And Belshazzar, God's going to hold you accountable for your sin. And Daniel spoke with authority. Verse 22 but you, his grandson, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of his testimony. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. 
You praise the gods of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. You did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, Belshazzar, you're facing his judgment. He's holding you accountable for your sin. You're listening to Living in the Light with Anne Graham Lotz and today's message from Daniel chapter 5, who glorified God by what he said and did with his life. Here's Anne with these closing thoughts. Praise God. Jesus has taken his judgment for us. It's time for you and me to show our gratitude for the cross. We're taking God's judgment for our sin on himself. And how do we show our gratitude? By repenting, turning away from our sin. Listen to me. As followers of Jesus, our sinful behavior makes a mockery of who he is to the world around us. Instead of looking at us and seeing a reflection of who he is, the world looks at us and sees a reflection of themselves. So repent now. Living in the Light is a weekly study in God's Word with teacher and author Anne Graham Lotz. Learn to listen to his voice. Then start making the choice to keep on going and believing and trusting who God is. Go to angramlots.org. Take advantage of the many helpful free resources to get you started. Join us again for Living in the Light. <music>